0: Streaming live from Treaty 1 Territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, the place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island, I'm excited to host the first Nuit Blanche Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the Territory of Toronto under the Treaty of a Dish with One Spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I'm your host and artistic director, Julie Nagam, and this is my ninth episode, Remixes and Vibrations. We'll look at the transformation of media with sound, visual, and screen-based formats. As our world rapidly shifts towards new and digital media, the screen is constantly within our reach. This podcast weaves conversations with Alan Grayeyes, Dr. Carla Taunton, chung Hu Catherine Dong, and Dr. Johnson Wittehera, who all reflect on the new movements in music, photography, virtual and augmented reality technologies. Indigenous and racialized artists are breaking new ground in the area of digital and new media. This episode explores artists and critical thinkers demonstrating the importance of mobilizing their voice through these innovative and dynamic technologies. I have argued in the past that Indigenous artists have always been innovators, and therefore been at the forefront of practice and technological orientated methods. Over the past 10 years, I've had the pleasure of working with incredible people, like GLAM member, Dr. Carla Taunton, who explains the importance of relationships we build through art making folks have talked about this, that idea of engaging with with technologies of our everyday
1: things that we are comfortable with, that we are aware of. But in the context of Indigenous artists and Indigenous making, we can really think through the fact that Indigenous artists have always done this, engaging with with technologies that are available to them in their everyday. Thinking about the artists, you know, I'm talking to you from Mi'kmaq, from the ancestral and unceded territories of the Mi'kmaq nation, and thinking about the Mi'kmaq artists 500 years ago, and how that artist would have been, you know, contemporary artists adapting and exploring the technologies around them and thinking through how that was then visualizing their everyday, the things that were going on, the histories around them, but also in terms of conceptualizing ways of being and ways of knowing the world. So indigenous epistemologies and ontologies. Digital media is embedded in that practice and that notion of knowing the world and building relations. So this is a longstanding practice by Indigenous artists. And we talked about this, Julie, in the introduction that we wrote for Public 54 that explored global digital media arts and thinking about that longstanding practice of using technologies to tell stories and to record histories, to explore and visualize ways of knowing and being in the world and thinking through those connections to land and to waters, but also to cosmos. So thinking about kind of the tool of technology as a conduit for sharing intergenerational knowledges, but also in terms of building those gaps between historic ways of being or making and those contemporary modes. So those continuities between objects, but also knowledges. And I think that's one of the most significant things that I can really think about and I get really excited about when whether it be talking about or witnessing or engaging with artists who are making using technologies within kind of the new media and digital realm. Yeah, I think one of the things I've been considering is the way that we all encounter from whether it be from myself as a white settler, thinking about BIPOC artists and white settler artists in terms of visualizing the ways we encounter settler colonialism, for example, and making those that have become quite those structures, those systems that have become quite naturalized, almost invisible in some instances, visible. So whether that be think about buildings, for example, the architecture of settler colonialism and the way we navigate that, thinking about how artists have actually, you know, wrapped those buildings with different types of visual design that are embedded in their own communities, but also thinking about the ways that stories are recorded and told through artists' perspectives to encounter to unsettle and to make anew, to think through new relations between Indigenous and non-Indigenous folks, whether that be here in the context of Canada or Turtle Island, or whether that be in Aotearoa. Another thing I've been thinking about in terms of the role of digital media arts from the context of our current, like right now, is how, in some cases, you can bring the work of art into the homes, for example, of folks who might not otherwise go into the gallery or based on rural locations or northern locations that don't necessarily have access to the gallery. The idea that you can actually view and experience and be a part of um, an artist's work on your phone, for example. I mean, we say that these types of technologies are kind of the democratization of art making. And I have to stress that not everybody has access to internet. Not everybody has access to, say, a smartphone But globally, there is, you know, a growing access point to these technologies. And to think about somebody viewing it on their phone or their computer or potentially their TV screen versus only being able to kind of engage with the body of work that's in a gallery context or a museum context. So I think that's really powerful. And obviously, in our current moment of COVID and the pandemic, where we have heightened isolation, Obviously, for our own well-being, the opportunity then to bring and to engage and to be part of visiting with work in your own home, I think, has resonance, but also has that opportunity to continue to connect us and to build community. <laughs> oh, I was thinking also about the possibilities. So the possibilities of digital media in terms of an art practice. And Julie asked me to kind of think about like what's different about this kind of medium and obviously, whether you're a painter or a beater, or potentially you work you know, in large kind of installations, the kind of role of artists in many different societies, in many different time periods, is about that idea of visualizing your ideas and experiences and the world around you. But I also think the possibility of digital new media is really about activating and bringing alive, whether that be the futures, the possibilities, imagining futures. And also imagining and activating the ways in which we conceptualize ideas and memories and experiences. So in that way, as a viewer, you are brought along in that experience. And I watched that, I've been privy to that, but I've been a part of that in thinking about a lot of night festivals in terms of projections and work where it's like I see digital media as a verb, as that active presence of visualization, but also in terms of aesthetic action and in terms of creating a relational experience between the artist, you know, the object of whatever that is they're making and the viewer.
2: Don't stop.
0: The digital realm creates space for new voices, ideas, and transformation of place. Our relationships are impacted by colonial and racist structures, which has ruptured our communities greatly. For those of you that know me, nothing fills my soul like music. It is the heartbeat and the life force which continues to connect us to our histories and knowledges. I've been so fortunate to have a strong matriarchal guidance and love, which I think is our way forward to growth and healing. As we hear from Alan Gray Eyes, he explains it is his grounding foundation in his work.
2: My name's Alan gray I'm the festival director for the saiki he Festival here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, One territory. I think I always try to acknowledge the work that my mom does for our family, because for a lot of us Ishmael Bay folks out here, we're still dealing with the effects of residential schools, and so I'm able to focus on my work and perform at a high level, simply because my mom handles a lot of the trauma and a lot of the, carries a lot of the baggage for our family, and so I wanted to acknowledge my mom first and foremost. We're really determined to take music and the arts to some of the less fortunate families in Winnipeg. I think for a lot of them it's either ticket prices or cultural isolation or even personal safety concerns and family responsibilities that, you know, make it harder for indigenous families to go to a concert hall or to attend the Winnipeg Folk Festival or the Jazz Festival here or any of the concert series. And so we're a little different and we take the music to them. And we're able to do that simply because we have great partnerships with organizations like Mama Way, and Central Neighborhoods Winnipeg, and uh, Spence Neighborhood Association who help us connect with those families and help us put together our, our, our concerts and block parties every year. I always, I really want to see Indigenous kids dancing at concerts. And so whenever I get to see them having fun and like forgetting about the You know, the need to protect themselves on every level there, I think, in their daily lives. I think when they can just forget all their worries and dance, that's the most fun for me. And that's definitely one of the reasons that we take music to these less fortunate neighborhoods. But I think it's also important to note that what I've learned through presenting music is that, you know, these families that we're working with, I think a lot of them don't really do well in classrooms. And so when we replicate a classroom with a concert setting in which there's a stage and people are forced to sit quietly and watch or sit nicely in in one place and watch, it's just a foreign concept. It's a different way of, I think those families and and our families here in the region definitely want to be more participatory in the arts. And so it's nice that we're able to take the music to them and show them that, you know, they can do anything and the arts and music is an option for them in their careers or in their hopes and dreams. But again, I think like we're forcing them to participate in the arts in a way that's not comfortable for them oftentimes. And I often look at like the powwows um, here in the Canadian Plains and how they're participatory. Like you can dance into traveling, stand by the drum that you like, the singers that you like, and get up and walk around at any time. And then, so it's not that one-way conversation or that one-way presentation. I kind of feel conflicted. I like the fact that we can take music to these families, but I also feel bad about the fact that we're forcing them to participate in the arts in a way that's not comfortable for them oftentimes.
0: I have had the opportunity to witness and participate in the awesome concerts and festivals that Allen has produced. And the ways we experience and the formats of how we engage with arts and culture impact the ways in which specific artists engage with ideas of public and urban spaces. Visual literacy and the use of technology is the key to our understanding, how to make radical change or bring forward issues like the ones Catherine is using and unpacking gender and the culture of shame in Asian communities.
3: Like working with performance, photographs, and video. And currently, I'm very interested in VR and the VR. I use body, also my own body, as a visual material in my work to activate the social commentary on gender, race, and immigration, and how to transform the social political landscape through performative gestures. The work at Leon Blanche, Toronto, is called the Skin Deep. It's a series of photographs with the argumental reality component that explores sources of things, face in relation to Asian shame culture. I think many people have already known Asian society are associated with the shame culture. Chinese shame is really rooted on the concept of face. The reason I cover my face in my work is because shame in China means losing face. If one has lost face. one feels uh, ashamed of letting down one's culture, family, or self. Even in many Asian societies, uh, shame is uh, also used as a, as a tool of social control and harmony, especially heavily applied on women who might uh, disrupt this status quo. So in my work, I translated the word shame to a culture symbol and made a series of ID card photographs and by hiding my face in Chinese symbolic silk fabric. It refers to both the quality of only being seen as a Chinese in Canada, and the lack of acknowledgement of my personhood as a girl when when I was in China. So is acting of drawing back the curtain and point uh, to the deeply embedded feelings of shame that can cause women to hold back and uh, stay silent. So uh, shame also is, my, is a topic of my long-term research. I think I started in 2012. I made a series of performance photographs and a video to address this issue and my focus is to explore the visual culture of shame associated with vulnerability in its personal and social-political dimension, By amplifying an underwritten and non-Western woman's narratives, I position making shame visible as a feminist strategy of resistance, a way of speaking out, and a side of inquiry, a shame is a very uh, negative emotion, and a very painful feeling. But what I was thinking about when I made this work was how I turned this negative emotion to an empowering strength. So at that time, I thought about vulnerability. Uh, vulnerability is not like weakness, but many people might think about that. But vulnerability is actually a strength. It really takes like courage to show people you. Vulnerability. So, if you can really make your vulnerability visible, it is very empowering, I think. So, I also want to talk about a little bit of shame related to what happened right now. I think shame is also unspoken in many cultures, and especially in such challenging time when an East Asian community has faced hostility because of a pandemic how to fight with this uh, imposed shame has become my like everyday concern. I think this work kind of offered a potential side for people to understand Asian shame and the question how we continue to see ourselves each other. So this is about a little bit about my work. So these AI also have some argument reality from so everyone can access AR as long well as one has a smartphone and downloads a free app on one's phone. When one opens the app and points at a photograph and animated video will appear on one's phone screen over the orange photograph, sound will be active too. So by applying the visual layers on top of photographs so that the image uh, becomes alive and uh, architectural. I originally wanted to use different kind of use of video and sculpture to make more work about shame. But I think if I make video and sculpture, I feel I would still use traditional media. And I have been kind of interested in technology for a long time, but I never got a chance to do it because I always traveling in past years. So that's why I was thinking why I just make myself go another direction by using technology just try it, just try how to work it. So that's why the, how the AR came, you know, because I wanted to have a work that can combine a photograph, a video and the sculpture together. So that's why I thought about um, the augmented reality can make these things happen. Because the photograph is one layer and the video is another layer. Because people have to hold the phone in front of the photograph, so it become architectural. And also, I really like the kind of fact that the audience also becomes very performative too because they hold their phone and they want to see how the augmented reality works. So sometimes they just walk like from like left and right and up and down, you know, to try all kinds of presentation to see the work. So it's kind of interesting to see how audience become performative
0: too. Catherine's work is just mesmerizing with the movements of patterns that are politically charged AR works for Nui 2020. It'll be exciting to witness where her practice continues with new media. On the other side of the planet, Aotearoa, New Zealand, is leading the way for Maori language design and digital media. The strength of their mana is present in all that they tackle. Johnson is one of a handful of Maori designers in the country and has taken on the challenge to build a creative hub, Po.
4: Johnson, wikihira, my name is Johnson Wikihira. I'm an artist a designer from Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm a Māori artist and uh, my area of expertise is really Māori design and contemporary Māori art and design. And I, I've been on the journey in that space for over the last 12 years and the, the main reason I've been working here is Growing up in Māori, growing up indigenous in New Zealand, the physical world, the spaces, the public and the private spaces that we kind of inhabit during the days and during our lives, for the most part, are extremely monocultural. So I've kind of made it my, my mission in life to change our spaces so that we can see our culture reflected back to us. And in a the big way, for thinking about my children, so that they don't have to grow up, I guess, with the same kind of um, identity issues. You know, they can, instead of not seeing themselves in the world and other the things they hold, that they can hopefully see themselves in these things around them. So that's my kind of mission, and it's a really big mission and a big project to do. You know, we're underway got a, a whole lot of talented indigenous people in Aotearoa and around the world now, actually, to, um, to help us bring this to life. For the work with, for Nui 2020, what I was really interested in is how I can bring specific cultural forms, the Māori kind of car forms, into digital spaces, I guess, in a way that talks about our papa. You know, for, for Māori culture, whakapapa is a word, word that means genealogy. For me, my I can say my genealogy is very much associated with my river and my people being from a river. So the artwork features kind of two key elements. One is, is these carved forms that are specific to where I'm from and how I can see. And the other are these types of flowing water like forms, which were just, for me, very abstracted ways of talking about my connection to the river. And you know, I am my being from this river. There's a saying within my people, it's called te awa kote o, awa ko it literally means I am the river, and the river is me. So, yeah, it's just, it's a really big part of who we are. And um, one thing I try and do with my work is there aren't, there still aren't very many Māori working in digital spaces, even though we've had the tools for a long time. And with those that are working in digital spaces, for the most part, it's not animated or digital. It's still working, I guess creating artworks that are flat or to be printed, as opposed to moving. So that's a big thing with my work as well, is really trying to use, I guess, the latest technologies and the latest techniques, especially animation, to bring our stories to life in a different way. A lot of my work feature tata, which in Māori is a vulva or a vagina, and the reason for that is within the Māori cosmology, Hine Nuitepo is a female deity, She's the strongest data. So on many of our carved forms, the tada or the carved vagina is actually seen as a symbol of power. So it appears in a lot of my artworks is referencing the power of woman. And that's related to normally the context of the work or the kaupapa and what's in it, but also it features a lot in our car forms as well. So for me, it's a way of continuing our traditions from a carved form into a digital animated form. But that work in particular I created the, this animation where you have, essentially, it's Captain Cook's arrival and talking about his arrival and he comes through what looks like, I guess, a giant vagina that's warping uh, space and time and that's talking about the power of woman, I think, in a very general way. But I, I kind of really like using those forms and twisting them and playing with scale and mix because, for the most part, as well, when these genitalia are drawn in my out, know, often they're abstracted or they're out a way where people... They find it hard to tell what they are. There's a bit of ambiguity around that and I think, for me, as an artist, I can have a bit of fun with that ambiguity. You know, I, could, I can put forms in there. If someone looks at this animation, they just see this kind of, I guess, 16th, 17th-century European ship coming out of this portal across the ocean and appearing on the on the horizon. But actually, it's coming out of this, this large carved which And then talking about, and our stories, Port is a place of, sorry, woman are a place of life and death. I guess in a abstract way as well, that idea of it being a place of life and death. But Cook came. He brought a lot of technologies and a lot of philosophies and a lot of ideas and tools that our people found useful. But they also brought a lot of things that were really harmful to our people. You know, they brought a lot of destruction, a lot of death, and it's kind of. I think because of it, there's always complexity when you engage on these stories talking about European engagement with indigenous peoples, you know, it's, it's never black and white. And it bothers me sometimes how those stories are portrayed, as very black and white, it's very one-sided, sometimes as us being victims, and for the most part we engage with a lot of these technologies and ideas in a proactive way, and, and then I think what, you know, what followed from that was not, for the most part, positive for our cultures, but I guess through talking about that proactive engagement for us and then it talks about us you know not just being passive in this colonization Uh, you know it talks about it kind of empowers us i think and even though things didn't work out how we wanted to it's not like we were just kind of sitting around being colonized you know we're, we're active you know we're actively engaged in these new religions and new philosophies, and basically, I think, you know, as indigenous people do, we just saw what tools were valuable and useful to us, and we adopted those, and the other ones that we were, we just did more of us, and kind of threw them aside, and, and a big part of the problem of colonization is while indigenous peoples were happy to take up the ideas and tools and philosophies of our European ancestors, our European ancestors were not happy to do the same. They did not see the value in our tools and our philosophies and ideas and options
0: our histories of discovery are extremely troubling. It reinforces that we were not thriving or innovating before contact and colonization. The Pacific is an amazing place where the water is the routes that connect us, just as the spark of transmission lines can transform us into the digital world. Night festivals and public exhibitions like Nui, Nocturne, and Art in the Open allow for playful transformation of public space the placement of epic artwork that can breathe new life into urban spaces, just as Carla expands on some of the glam projects on the east coast of Canada.
1: So recently, as you know, Julie, because we're collective members of GLAM with Dr. Heather Goliorte, we've had the opportunity to kind of activate our dream projects in a way, in terms of bringing for incubators where we bring artists together and ask them within between like seven and 10 days to engage with digital media technologies and make a new work. Uh, So commissioning projects, and then usually at the end of it, we create an installation. We've been engaging with night festivals. So recently, Uh, We had the opportunity to work here in Mi'kmaq for two Nocturne festivals in Halifax and then also at Art in the Open in 2019 in Charlottetown. And these opportunities have been incredible because we're bringing artists together that have a range of skill. It's intergenerational in terms of folks in terms of not only age, but in terms of where folks are at in their career, and also in terms of their engagement with different types of, of materiality. And seeing artists you know, consider for the first time that digital media might be a medium for them in terms of bringing forward, say, their print practice like Jerry Evans or their beading practice like Carrie Allison. So as a GLAM project, in past October in 2020. We were able to work with the Central Halifax Library and conceive of of a project. And when we first proposed this project, it was pre-COVID, and so we had different ideas of engagement. And then through thinking about the wellness of community, but also because it was a time when there was heightened conflict and active presence and incredible resistance movement towards systemic racism within Nova Scotia specifically around Mi'kmaq rights to fishing and lobster rights. And so we wanted to think through, how could we activate a space that was about claiming not only thinking you know, Indigenous sovereignties but also treaty rights and treaty relationships. And so we were able to take over over 100, 150 feet <laughs> of the library, basically the back of the main auditorium space, so spanning that entire range of windows. And using three large projectors uh, from the inside, projected onto the windows five incredible works that we were able to commission. Work by uh, Logan McDonald, who's a Mi'kmaq Canadian art artist. Uh, originally from Newfoundland, uh, Katarina Kekeri from Aotearoa, Keriyama Taupa, also from Aotearoa, and Amrita Heppi working out of Australia and Cuisine Van Hoovelin, who is actually a NASCAD grad from, you know, here in Halifax, but living in Ontario and an Inuit uh, artist from Nunavut. So these works were all very different in terms of obviously aesthetic and the range of the stories and imagery that they were sharing, but it was incredible because it created a site of visiting. It was in a huge courtyard space you know, that spanning of those windows was in the back of that auditorium space, which then people viewed from this large courtyard. And so after isolation for so long and lockdown, we were able to, you know, invite people to come and socially distance and view these incredible works that would, you know, ebb and flow across this glass. Witnessing folks' engagement with Amrita Heppi's movement of bodies was incredible. Because of the light, it was obviously shot in Adelaide territories in Australia. And so the light was warm and oranges and yellows and reds and really lush (laughs) landscape. Whereas we were in this kind of fall, kind of gray Halifax (laughs) environment where it was cold and raining. So I think it brought people together and to watch children and family members engaging and bringing people, I think, some warmth at a time that was really, really needed. So that was a really exciting opportunity that we were able to do. And currently, Evan Flow with these incredible five five works, is now touring across the Northwest Territories. And that idea where we could, you know, that's one of the really exciting things about digital new media in terms of curating is that you can send a file, (laughs) especially right now, because it's hard to be, you know, sending work. You can send a file with all of these works and some instructions and obviously provide technologies and things to help, you know, generate the whole kind of overall installation, but you can get it to different types of communities, which otherwise would not necessarily have access to viewing these works by global Indigenous new media artists. So one of the things that I really appreciate this October Being able to engage with Nuit Blanche, obviously I was very sad not to actually be in Toronto and being with artists and curators and the whole incredible community that is within Toronto, which is now also a global community, was the project of Nuit in Your Neighborhood. And I felt that opportunity to be a part of especially the AR and VR work by such an incredible range of artists. And being able to bring, for example, Jerry Evans' work into my living room and into my backyard with my children and viewing that work and almost bringing the caribou home, uh, you know, and that opportunity where you're feeling, I was feeling isolated and I was really feeling in a way homesick, but just missing the arts community in general. And so having Jerry present, uh, Gene Marshall's work, Maureen Grubin, Shelley Nero, Artists that I have been exploring and considering and engaging with for a long time, but actually having them in my home space was absolutely incredible.
0: I know I had so much fun creating, playing, and imagining what we could do for Nui in the virtual world that didn't seem static or not engaging in the feeling of exploring art in public spaces and recreating the excitement of discovery, wonder, and awe that Nui brings. Just as I miss going to live concerts and festivals, the shift to the digital for music has been much more difficult, as Alan explains.
2: Yeah, I feel like we've definitely, having to take the music and the festival and our concert series in workshops online has been, it was a hard challenge. It was definitely a hard transition for us as an organization. When I say organization, it's just I'm pretty much the only person working on it full time and we bring in contractors. So it was like an uphill or a quick learning curve for me in figuring out the best practices and also learning the technologies and building new teams. That was hard. But I guess the success was in that we were able to pay artists, Indigenous artists, professional performance fees to, to also take their music online. So that was really great and that we got a lot of money out into the community during the pandemic. And I think uh, in 2020, we did about 43 broadcasts on Facebook and YouTube over the course of, I think it was 10 months. So I feel really good about that. Where we fell short is our ability to connect with those disadvantaged or those less fortunate families. And what we learned is that oftentimes like they don't have the same access to high speed Internet. They don't have the same access to technology, either laptops or smartphones or Apple TVs that they can watch the content online. And so I think we fell short in taking the arts to them like we usually do outside of the pandemic. This new project that we're currently working on is for province of Manitoba's Safe at Home program. And we've included a radio broadcast with every online performance. And the idea is to reach audiences and listeners across the province who don't have the same access to high-speed internet or computers or smartphones. And yeah, just provide entertainment on platforms that they're accustomed to using. I also feel like it's an important part in reaching older audiences through the radio by partnering with NTIFM. Yeah, I started working in music. Actually, I always wanted to work on the business side of the music industry. I grew up with hip hop culture and I was always a big fan of The Source magazine and XXL and Nas and Jay-Z and all that New York scene, to be honest. And I figured my a better place for me was on the business side. And uh, since the early 90s, trying to build up the skills to do editorial photography and editorial writing and also just academic writing. And then I did my BA in economics and came out of there with the skills and, I guess, education to compete for jobs in the nonprofit sector. And when Manitoba Music posted a job. I was able to compete for that and win it. And so the Manitoba Music is an industry association that helps artists for the most part with the business side of the industry, like learning, helping them develop the skills and tools they need. And it also gave me an opportunity to build my my professional network and my business network and artistic network. And so through the, I guess it's been about 15 years now, I've been working in music full time. Yeah, just giving me an opportunity to not only learn new skills and meet great people, but also, I don't know, I, I guess that all that's all it is, is like test myself, continue to test myself on a daily basis because the music industry is overly complicated and there's so many things that you need to do as an artist or as an entrepreneur or a manager or a presenter on any given day and everything's always changing and that's what I really appreciate about music is um, the ability to, to test myself and to also adapt to change and to and try new things on a regular basis and how that fits in with the greater I guess arts community is that I understand like the power but I think like what we have in music is an opportunity to challenge stereotypes with every stage that we take. Every stage that we set up is an opportunity to challenge stereotypes and to show Canadians that Indigenous people have just as many possibilities and just as much value as their loved ones do. So I think that's, that's what I really appreciate about being a part of the music industry and also a part of the art scene here in Canada. Taking <laughs> yeah. these concerts online is tough work. And the thing is like our festival, we are a launch pad for new indigenous voices. And so one of the biggest challenges for us taking stuff online is that most of these artists don't have existing audiences. And so we're having to create multiple marketing pieces for all social media platforms for every artist, just to introduce them and to show people why they should tune into the broadcast. Yeah, you know what, I'm really excited for that. Because again, I think there's power in sync people in person and I think that's where we have the most impact is when these young people get to see themselves reflected in the acts on stage and the discovery of just like showing up and walking out there, walking out the front door of their homes and seeing us set up in their neighborhood and then discovering acts that just show them that they can, they can challenge stereotypes and they can break destructive cycles and they can do great things with their lives. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting out of this pandemic. (laughs)
0: Oh my gee, I couldn't agree more. As an extrovert that loves socialization, music, art, and culture, it's been a tough year for everyone. What I've been trying to do is focus on how fun it will be to gather again and have Nui in full force with artist takeovers like Johnson's new work planned for 2022.
4: Every time I try and create a new artwork, I try and push myself aesthetically, technically, and and conceptually. And that's what I'm gonna be doing for this, the new work for Nui. 2022 I'm really I guess with this one interested in exploring how I can create an immersive experience one that's in some way to a universal really bold graphic aesthetic to it um, because I find that if content sometimes is too culturally specific it can kind of throw people off it can kind of um, become invisible in a way and that's one thing I try and do with my forms is I try and abstract them out in a way that it's still universal but it still has a bit of where is that from that's a strange thing I haven't seen before. And with, I guess, familiar as well, one thing beyond the animated side of things, I'm really interested in, in how we might use sound within the space as well. And that's one thing I haven't tried with the New York, New York show, with the work in Times Square, you know, that was powerful in the effect that it was across 36 screens at the same time. And that was the first time that had ever been done in Times Square, actually, was the synchronising of those streams. But I really love sound and artworks. And often I think sound can be more powerful Um, Than the visuals, it can really kind of transport you to somewhere else, either in the artwork or somewhere else in your own past. So, I'm interested in how we can use sound, and I guess how we can use sound in these very public spaces. And that should be a big challenge. You know, there's lots of noise, you know, from people moving around and from vehicles and so on. So, I think that's going to be an interesting challenge of how we can kind of create, I guess, spaces for the soundscape to be experienced by people. One thing I'm really interested in my artwork is this, is there's a real constant evolution with indigenous art, indigenous art practice of us, or a constant lineage of us taking up new aesthetics and applying them and reinterpreting them inside our works. And every time I create a new work, I kind of draw on something we've done in the past a different way and kind of, I guess, stitch that into what I'm doing. And I think it's just because, you know, that we've got such an expansive history of creating and you know, of, of visual culture and often it's defined really narrowly you know and often in relation to the past and when I say the past I mean what people understand is our traditional works and I just really like to try and push that and challenge that every time I hang out and I can say we have a history of doing this you're not aware of no we have a history of doing this and I think I guess I'm not really trying to educate people but I just try and open their eyes a bit more the threat of our indigenous cultures and to, to remind people that it's an evolving thing, you know, and that we're part of that evolving nature of it. And if it doesn't evolve, it ends up in the museum again. And that's not where we want our cultures to be.
0: Collecting, cataloging cultures is rife with tensions and the complex history of ownership in museums, which continues to be a battle for BIPOC people across the planet. Similarly, it's important to highlight incredible women artists such as Catherine working in technologies, as it tends to be a male-dominated space. As we need to recognize digital media as a decolonial tool, it is imperative that we showcase a multitude of voices that will reimagine our future.
3: Mm, that is a very interesting topic, and uh, yes, and uh, it is not because I'm a woman, so I didn't use technologies. But I'm, a, I have been interested in technology for a long time. As i mentioned, I just, I don't, I didn't get the time to do it. I think it's very empowering when women use technology for myself. And I started to make augmented reality in 2019 at that time. I didn't know anything about augmented reality, I didn't have anything about thing to do about technology because I always do you know, performance, you know, but I tried, you know, and uh, I'm very proud. I made my first augmented reality work without any help from technician or kind of expert, you know, I'm very proud of that. and. Uh, And I just made it. I just watched the tutorial on YouTube and do research and try it. And finally, I made it. I also, last year in summer, I built up my own PC. I bought pieces of uh, parts of my computer. I put them together. I was so proud of myself, I have to say. (laughs) Because I have no experience about how to do it. But it's the thing, as long as you you try it, you really find out it's very empowering thing. And uh, since that, I started to explore VR as well and use lots of tools to, to make some work. And I kind of recently, I wanted to make my, I want to do performance in VR. So it's kind of like taking my performance in public space to VR space. So I think it's a fantastic experience for me. I do feel like Explorer technology is very empowering experience for women, at least for me. I think in such challenging times, and uh, many people feel isolated and disconnected. I think augmented reality is the a new, the new neighborhood and really build a connection between audience and art. And it offered a chance for people to enjoy art in any space and any time. It's really amazing, you know, that you don't have to go to museums or galleries to see the artworks. And actually, you can own the artwork temporarily, and you just use your phone and put the artwork anywhere you wish, like in your kitchen and backyard and the park. And you can enjoy it anytime you wish. And, and it's just is amazing to to see how technology helps us to go through this difficult time. You know, I just find it's very amazing. I want to send this message. OK. <laughs> because my work and also my research is about shame, right? So in this International Women's Day, I want to say that it's very important for women to recognize that shame is both a social and a personal issue. If you're only thinking about shame is personal, you don't want to talk, to a talk because it is personal, right? But if you think it's a social issue, I think people will be willing to talk about it more openly. So the more you talk about shame, get it out from your chest the more you will destroy shame and then i also want to say when you feel shame about yourself it is very important to tell yourself that it is not your fault shame is a social constructed issue that relates to culture religion class age gender and so on so I just want to send this message out and to all women, International Women's Day, just be strong, be who you are,
0: because you are fabulous. Hmm. So I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say chi Marcy, Marci, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. And tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place.